It's hard to believe that it's been five years since LucasArts went under. It was originally Lucasfilm Games, and the studio was responsible for a lot of big games. Probably best known by me for their Star Wars games, but they had lots of other stuff. Studios known for some classic games. I'm going to go and mention a few non-Star Wars titles before delving into the Star Wars games that I remember the most. Grim Fandango, Full Throttle, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle, Monkey Island 1 and 2, LucasArts slash LucasFilm Games had a number of classic PC and console titles. They were dissolved not too long after the Disney and Lucasfilm merger, which was in 2012, and the studio went away in 2013. I think it was back in March or April of 2013. So, wow. You know, sometimes that Disney-Lucasfilm merger seems like it was yesterday, but it was in 2012 when it happened, and since then we've gotten four Star Wars movies. Force Awakens... Rogue One, The Last Jedi, Solo, most recently here in May. But it wasn't just yesterday. It's been five years, or it's been six years, since the merger was announced and the sale was complete. And then it took another year for LucasArts to say goodbye. And to be perfectly honest, I, I know the studio was in disarray. Most of their games were disappointments in their last few years before they were shuttered. And one of their, their most popular games, or one that did well for them, was Star Wars The Force Unleashed, which was 2009, I think. Still play it on occasion on the Xbox 360. And the sequel to that game was complete disappointment. It was rushed, it was short. I never played it in its entirety, and that was The Force Unleashed 2. And because of the weak games that they'd been churning out, Disney just decided in that acquisition, LucasArts has to go. Now, I talked last week about Optimus Prime and Transformers the movie and how that was a big moment when I was a kid that signaled the end of something that I loved. I handled the closure and shutdown of LucasArts a lot better than I handled the death of Optimus Prime. They had a really good run, and a lot of those games that they put out shaped my childhood. And a lot of them drove console purchases, or heavily influenced them. And since LucasArts has gone away, Disney has really tried to lean on electronic arts for the Star Wars games, and the results have been mixed without a doubt. The first Battlefront of the resurrected Battlefront series got a pretty lukewarm, maybe negative reception, depending upon who you talk to. I rented it. Graphics were phenomenal, but I'm not big on the multiplayer games. I'm not great at shooters. I'm the one who usually gets shot and killed a lot. I'm just not very skilled at it. I had the same problem with Halo. But there, there is no denying that Halo is fun to get your friends together, network a bunch of Xboxes and Xbox 360s, and play Halo. I had some friends from college. We don't do it much anymore. You know, you, you, you grow up, you have other things go on in your lives. But we would have LAN parties, and we'd all get together and we'd play Halo, and I would get my butt kicked almost every match, but every once in a while I'd have a good kill. But you know what? It was fun. But then again, you're playing with friends in a room, and, and you're all getting excited and yelling and, and laughing, and it's it's a great deal of fun. When you're playing these games online against strangers, and you're not very skilled, it's not as much fun. You know, people are, are making fun of you and taunting you, and you can't do anything about it because you're not good at the game, so it's not like you're going to blow them up and unless it's an accident. Well, I appreciated Battlefront, the EA version, for what it tried to do. I didn't love the game. I never bought it. Just a rental for a, a week or so. And I was really excited about Battlefront 2 and the single-player campaign, but I probably will pick it up one of these days and play it, but I still haven't. A lot of reservations about that game mostly tied, not for me necessarily, but from a lot of people tied to loot boxes, and it just became a big headache and a mess, and prompted some think pieces about... Maybe it's time for Disney to seek out somebody other than EA to do their Star Wars games, and, and maybe there's some merit to that. To be perfectly honest, the Star Wars game license has not been the same since we've lost LucasArts. We've had some really excellent, uh, and, and they are fun. The Lego Star Wars games, lots of fun from Traveler's Tales. 
but we've not had a game in the Star Wars universe on PC or console that just speaks to you and says, I've got to have that game. That game's going to be a formative part of my life or my kid's life. Uh, it's a game I'm always going to remember. And I, I think people will remember Battlefront and Battlefront 2, but they're going to remember them for the wrong reasons. Now, when Disney got rid of LucasArts, there, there were some games under development, including one called uh, Star Wars 1313 or Star Wars Underground. It's supposed to be this open-world game set in the CD underbelly of the Star Wars universe. Looked great. I think we saw some trailers or some gameplay, and that's sort of the, the, the great white buffalo of Star Wars games. There was also a lot of work done on a Battlefront 3, which has sort of leaked out here and there, because Battlefront, while it is the franchise on EA, it originated as, you know, a game that was developed for the other, the previous console versions, and it's sort of an offshoot of those games. So, mechanically, there's some similarities, but I don't think they recapture the magic of the Battlefront games, in my opinion, and, and I think a lot of people share that. I mean, if it did, then I would probably have rushed out and bought both Battlefront and Battlefront 2, and I didn't. But LucasArts really made my childhood. They just had some great stuff. You knew if you saw the LucasArts logo on a box, you knew the game was going to be good. It just had to be. It had that LucasArts magic, and at that time, we still saw George Lucas as an innovator and a creative guy. And so we thought, you know, if he had any involvement in that game, and he probably didn't, but we thought maybe he would, that that game must be something special, that he must have given it his blessing to it. So from the early 90s through the early 2000s, they just had an incredible number of really good Star Wars games. They don't really produce games as a studio anymore. I thought maybe it would be time to talk about some of my favorite LucasArts games and revisit it because it's been five years since this happened. Now, one of the earliest games I remember is the Star Wars side-scrolling platformer for the Nintendo Entertainment System. This is a game I never owned. I rented it multiple times. And I did have the Game Gear version, which was released a few years later. I think US Gold did the conversion for that system. And from what I remember, the games were virtually identical and they were classic 8-bit games in that they were really hard. They were platformers with impossible jumps and difficult bosses and just, you know, you, you get your butt kicked. And the only way you got good at the game was to play it over and over and die repeatedly until you ran out of continues and play it again. It was one of those types of games. It had some nice interpretations, the 8-bit music versions of the Star Wars theme and the Cantina Band. switch between characters, and Han Solo had a pretty powerful blaster. Luke had a pea shooter. He could kind of upgrade that blaster a little bit, and then he could get a lightsaber. That was always fun to use. You, you know, in, in classic 8-bit formula, enemies respawn fairly quickly, so, you know, you missed a jump, then you'd have to go and fight everybody again. If you missed a jump and you fell a long way, then you fell to your death. Even if you didn't fall on spikes or a, or a chasm or anything like that, if you were on the Death Star level and you missed the jump and you ended up on the ground floor, you would just sort of die in a ball of flame. And that was it. Goodbye, Mr. Skywalker, Mr. Solo. If I remember right, Princess Leia had a little bit of the Princess Peach from Mario 2 in her. Her jump was a little floaty, and she could make some of the jumps more than some of the other characters. And once you lost Han or Luke, they were dead. You couldn't get back and use them. They did mix it up a little bit. They had a um, part where you, you blasted some TIE Fighters with the Falcon, and they did a trench run that was top-down. I don't think I ever beat it. I think I got to the trench run. I don't think I ever quite nailed that part, but it, it was tough. Even the Game Gear version, like I said, it was basically identical. 
Tried really hard, but but couldn't quite ever beat it. And that was like, I think, 91 for the Nintendo game and 1993 for the Game Gear, which I don't know if you remember the Game Gear. I think everybody universally knows what the NES was, the Nintendo Entertainment System, or the NES, apparently, if you're from overseas. The Sega Game Gear was Sega's attempt to take on the Game Boy, the Game Boy, of course, being that black and white, or as Sega would want to tell you, the cream spinach color. The Game Gear was full color, had an LCD backlit screen with terrible contrast, but I really did like the Game Gear. It was basically the Sega Master System, which was very popular in Europe, but tanked hard here in the U.S. It was pretty much just the Master System stuffed into a portable system. And I I had a lot of fun with Game Gear games. Even though the the titles were inferior, I had like NFL 95 starring Joe Montana. Graphics were terrible, but it was a fun game of football. And I had a few baseball games, those were fun as well. The NHL 95 that I had was a really good representation, really good 8-bit representation of the 16-bit game. And I could, as I would on the on the Genesis or the Sega CD, I could rule the ice with Brett Hall and the St. Louis Blues. Good game. But the, the Game Gear got some ports, you know, of a lot of different games. And, and Nintendo games lent themselves well to that because the Sega Master System was the contemporary to the NES. Technologically, it was a little more advanced than the Nintendo. And so they, they could port these games and they, they do a pretty good job with it. Weirdly, and I'll talk about Empire Strikes Back in a second. Weirdly, the Empire Strikes Back game never appeared on the Game Gear. Which, while it had a port of the Nintendo side-scroller, the one for the NES... It didn't have an Empire Strikes Back version, and there was no 8-bit game made for Return of the Jedi for the Nintendo. But there was Super Return of the Jedi that was made for the Super Nintendo, and so the Game Gear got a port of Super Return of the Jedi. I always thought that was bizarre. 1992, for the Nintendo, you had the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Like the first Star Wars game, it was freaking impossible. But still, it was a great game. They had some attempts at voice sampling. They used some digitized voice. Vader's breathing, I remember. Obi-Wan used some of his sound clips. I think there was some Yoda in there, too. Graphics were a little bit better than the Star Wars game. The music was really, really memorable. I just really remember their interpretations of, like, Han Solo and the Princess and the Imperial March. Like the other game, enemies regenerated pretty much at will, so you miss a jump, or you gotta go back and do a part, you gotta go and kill all the bad guys again. You know, when you go back and play them now, it really is, it was frustrating then. Let's, let's face it, it was frustrating then. It's even more frustrating now, since game mechanics have evolved, and... We still see these same things happening over and over again. Now, while I did not beat the Star Wars game, I did make it to the end of The Empire Strikes Back. Once I beat the game, I beat Darth Vader, probably the proudest video game moment of my life. Because that that game's tough. Completely unforgiving. I mean, you go to the Dagobah level and there are just so many things that can just kill you with a snap of a finger. Just out of nowhere. I I did kind of want to... Kill that game with fire at some points, but I kept playing it. It was Star Wars. I was a kid. I was going to keep playing it. And it does have the sole distinction of being the only Nintendo game that I kept when I sold my system. I kept my copy of The Empire Strikes Back. Probably thinking, you know, it would be collectible or something like that, but mostly because I had a little bit of an emotional attachment to it. And what was neat about that game is because The Empire Strikes Back is a lot about Luke learning about his Jedi abilities, so you you were granted certain Force powers as the game progressed. I think you had to collect them, so there was like levitation and super speed and and super jumps and, and those kinds of abilities that you could get as you continued on your path toward becoming a Jedi, and they came in very handy against Darth Vader. I kept that game even though I have no system to play it on. The very first PC game that I remember for Star Wars playing, anyway, was X-Wing. And it came out around the time of a lot of excitement. Originally, it, it was around the time that 
Timothy Zahn wrote his Thrawn trilogy, which I think my brother would probably agree of all the Star Wars expanded media and all the books and comics and things that we have seen over the years. The Thrawn trilogy to us is the gold standard of what an expanded universe book should be. It feels like the universe, the characters behave like you would expect them to behave, and they add more mythology to the universe of Star Wars. You've got a great villain in Thrawn, you've got some great characters in there like Talon Card and Mara Jade. You know, maybe it goes off the rails a little bit with the clone of Luke in the third book, but man, it is just... I think one of the cover copy said something about, you know, chock full of the good stuff Star Wars fans have come to expect, and that is still how I feel about Heir to the Empire. And without that book... Would we be where we are with Star Wars today? It's hard to say, because Star Wars had gone away for a while. It never went out of the public consciousness, but the toy line faded away. We didn't see movies anymore. There weren't really comics and other things keeping it alive. Heir to the Empire kick-started everything, and then we got Shadows of the Empire. Then we got the special editions of the movies and the prequels. You know, since then, Star Wars has been huge comic books all the time, novels all the time, Disney buys Lucasfilm, and Star Wars is a force to be reckoned with again. Of the X-Wing game, I can say it was pretty awesome. I had a 286 computer that lacked a sound blaster, and I had a friend in, well, it was actually my brother's friend who was in high school when I was in junior high, or, or even maybe even younger than that, that copied the game for me. And it came on five discs, had no sound, because I didn't have a sound blaster. So the sound effects, the digitized voice, forget about it. But I really didn't care, because despite the lack of sound and sort of missing that atmosphere, that game worked great. There was still music in it, and you could click on infinite proton torpedoes and just go to town on the Empire. I don't think I ever finished the campaign, I don't think I ever had any of the expansions but X-Wing was an excellent game and remains very dear to my heart, especially since someone who knew I was interested in Star Wars and really loved those movies and had read the Timothy Zahn novels had recognized that and gotten me a copy. And, like I said, the first family computer that we had was this 286, and I don't even remember who made it. It had Lotusworks, which was our word processing program, and some early stories my brother and I wrote on that computer, but it, it was a pretty crappy computer. We upgraded in the mid-90s, finally, to like a Pentium that could have a CD-ROM drive and actually run games with that needed a sound blaster. And that brings us to TIE Fighter. Now, TIE Fighter, I believe, came out in 94, but I didn't play it until like 1995. This was after we had gotten the Compact Presario, and this game came in, I think, a collection box with several other. They had like the LucasArts archives, and this was one of the games that was in there, and it came with the expansion packs. So with the proper sound card... We got the voice, we got the really good music, we were playing as TIE Fighters, you know, zooming around and causing problems for the Rebel Alliance. In ships that were pretty much designed to kill you, the Empire had so many more resources, they didn't care if they threw 100 pilots of ships that would just spontaneously explode if you sneezed in them, because they could always outnumber the Rebels, even though the X-Wings had shields, and the A-Wings, and the B-Wings, and the Y-Wings all had shields. Very few Imperial craft had those. Just because the Empire would show up, they'd have a Star Destroyer full of TIE Fighters, and they would just deploy them all. So you had to be very careful in TIE Fighter, because unless you, you were flying certain models, you didn't have shields, so you, you had to be real careful, or you would die a very quick death. But that, that was a neat game. Involved some moral choices as to you know who you were serving in the Empire. Oddly, the thing that I loved the most about it was the opening crawl. For that, the opening scroll is really neat because it starts off like your your normal Star Wars game. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you hear the Star Wars fanfare, but then the main theme transitions into a really cool version of the Imperial March. I always thought that was really, really neat. <laughs>
story was pretty neat too because they didn't just make it a gimmick that you were playing from the Imperial point of view. There was a good story. There was a, a growing faction of Imperials who were trying to launch a coup against the Empire. And, you know, you kind of had to decide whether you were going to join them or not. And I think in one of the expansions, Grand Admiral Thrawn also made an appearance. And so that, that was a really good game. Star Wars TIE Fighter The Collector's Edition is definitely the version that we had. Another game probably best known as a PC game, CD-ROM game, but is one that I played on the Sega CD, is the first Rebel Assault. This was a big deal because I had a Sega Genesis and a Sega CD. I had a paper route, so that's one of the things that I used some of my money for, although the Sega CD was a Christmas gift. I got some help out from Santa Claus to pay pay for that. I, I just remember that for Rebel Assault, I had ordered the game, or, well, my mom had ordered the game through a catalog company called Jack of All Games when we saw it pop up in this catalog. We ordered it, we paid for it, and we waited forever for that game to arrive. I don't know when it was announced or when it was supposed to be out, if it was delayed, but my goodness, I didn't think that game was ever going to get here, uh, get home to Williamsburg, Indiana, it finally showed up. I was super excited and played it right away. It's not a particularly long game, not a particularly great game, but it is fun. They they do a lot of uh, full motion video sort of recreations of things that happen in Star Wars. You play as a character named Rookie One, which is more or less, Luke Skywalker. And the full motion video was stupidly pixelated because the Sega CD did not do full motion video well. All you have to do is Google it and see the crap that they tried to make us play in the 90s and convince us was good. But it was still cool to play Star Wars and have video. But all Sega CD video suffered from that problem grainy, difficult to make things out, low resolution. Parts of the game actually were unplayable when you got on the harder difficulty levels because some of the levels would give you targeting reticles and you could you would use those to to find the enemy and destroy them and they would lock on. If you went to the higher difficulty levels on on certain stages of the game, they they wouldn't let you have the targeting reticle and it wouldn't lock onto things. You were just kind of randomly moving this red target around. There were grainy textures that represented the the earth and grainy textures that represented your enemies. They looked the same and you couldn't blow anything up and things would, you know, run into your your ship or shoot you and you never saw them coming. It was a fun enough game. A Star Wars rail shooter with some really epic moments. You attacked a TIE fighter. You, of course, recreated the Battle of Hoth because that's what every good Star Wars game does, right? And you got an alternate history take on the Death Star Assault where instead of Luke Skywalker blowing it up and Han Solo showing up at the end, U.S. Rookie 1 blow it up and your flight instructor shows up to bail you out before you get blown out of the stars. like the Sega CD version was missing a level. I don't remember which one, but I do recall reading that. Still have my copy. I mean, again, I think I've mentioned it before. I did a video game episode uh, a few months ago, and I talked about a little bit about the Sega CD and the Sega Genesis, and that is my all-time favorite system, the, the, the Genesis, and I have kept all of my stuff 
for the Genesis and the Sega CD. I've still got all the games and the controllers, and I, I do believe that six-button Sega Genesis controller is one of the best ones ever made. Very comfortable, super, super fun to play with. A couple years later, LucasArts put out a sequel to Rebel Assault, creatively titled Rebel Assault 2. Don't remember it real well. I think I had, I, I did have it on PC, but it was also released for the PlayStation, I believe. That would have been about that time, yeah, mid-90s, so that would have been around the time of the Sony PlayStation. I, I do remember that the plot revolved around a new Imperial super weapon. There were cutscenes. They looked a lot better than the Sega CD version because everything looked better than the Sega CD version when it came to video. And you did fly a Millennium Falcon-type ship at one point, and I feel like it had even more video than Rebel Assault, which had quite a bit of video, but I, I feel like Rebel Assault 2 had even more, and it was spread across a couple of discs, while Rebel Assault was a single-disc game. That probably means more discs, more data, more story, more video. Also in 95, Doom and Wolfenstein 3D had revolutionized the PC gaming space, and people like to run around in corridors and shoot things. And to be honest, that's a perfect compliment to the Star Wars universe. And, and Dark Forces, which, rest in peace, Kyle Katarn, will never see you in the Star Wars universe proper again, probably, because the game's first mission is the guy who stole the plans for the first Death Star. And we know that that's not the case unless Kyle Katarn played some small incidental role in Rogue One that we never saw, because we know that Jyn Erso and her team went and stole the plans on Scarif. Those are the events of Rogue One, of course, and those are not the events of Dark Forces. Dark Forces was a great corridor-style shooting game, first-person shooter. First one I can recall set in the Star Wars universe. You played as the grizzled mercenary Kyle Katarn, who tries to disrupt the Empire's plot to unleash dark troopers on the galaxy. Really good game. Fast-paced. Graphics don't hold up very well, but you know, graphics aren't everything. We love seeing the hyper-realistic graphics these days and actors that look like actors and, and characters that look like real people when they move. Man, sometimes the old animation was great. Super pixelated. You know, the textures on the wall were bad. You get too close to a stormtrooper. It was hard to tell if they had, you know, eye slits and stuff like that. But it's got a charm to it and had some really challenging levels as well. But fast-paced, fun... There is something satisfying about picking up a Stormtrooper blaster and using it to, to blast a bunch of Imperials in a stage that looks like a Star Destroyer or the Death Star or what have you. Really nailed the aesthetics. A couple years later, they brought back Kyle Katarn for Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight. You want full motion video, this one is the game for you. If you, you're bored someday and you want a good laugh, look up Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight on YouTube. You'll find plenty of different videos that cut together scenes from that video game. This message is intended for my son, Kyle Katan. Kyle, I have left two very important items for you. The first is a map to the Valley of the Jedi and is embedded in the stone ceiling above this room. The last is a lightsaber that once belonged to a friend and great Jedi, Ron. Use it well. Use it for good. A game that kills you with full motion video, that shows off some quaint special effects, and includes some incredible overacting, especially on part of the villains, then let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight is the game for you. It's a bad fall, but you'll be glad to know I found your lightsaber. <laughs> Want it? <gasps> Very distinctive. so distinctive now, is it? <laughs> Enough of this. Tell Jarek that this Jedi will soon join the dead. Uh, oops. 
I am defenseless. Strike me down, and the power of the dark side will be yours. I'm sure you haven't forgotten. I was the one who murdered your father. No, I haven't. I had it on PC. At that point, our Pentium was probably not the most advanced Pentium computer at that point. Obviously, it was not. It was a lot of fun to play, and it handled it. We could load all the levels, and the frame rate wasn't terrible, so it's aces in my book. In in the first Dark Forces game, Kyle Katarn is, you know, kind of a Han Solo mercenary smuggler analog type of guy, a, a devil-may-care, grizzled, sarcastic type. And he pretty much stays that way in Dark Forces 2. He learns that he has some heritage as a Jedi. That is basically just an excuse for the game to let you run around with a lightsaber and level up with force powers. So you, you get the lightsaber, you get to sort of choose your path as to whether you're going to be a good Jedi or a bad Jedi, and there are accompanying force powers. You could use the, the mind trick, and that's kind of a neutral power. But if you were to use a force choke, that's an evil power. And if you've kind of chosen the good guy path, then that power is unavailable to you. Unless you know the keyboard code to give yourself all the force powers. It exists, and it was magical. But but other force powers were more light side balanced, like heal. You couldn't heal yourself if you were a dark side character. You had to use drain, which would take the life from somebody else in the level, you know, an enemy or, or whatever, non-player character, and you would suck their life force away, and that's how you regain your health. But if you were a good guy, you didn't have drain. You had heal. So they, they tried to give you some variety in that for the gameplay, so that you had an incentive to go back and play one way or another. You're going to be a good guy, you're going to be a bad guy, you're going to be neutral, because I, I think you could be neutral, where your morality scale sort of rested in the middle. And so you wouldn't have access to all of the light side powers, and you wouldn't have access to all of the dark side powers, but you would have access to some of the light side powers and some of the dark side powers. Or again, you could just use the keyboard code and get them all. It's awesome. The funny thing about this is, like I said, the acting is super cheesy, and I think I even knew it at the time. I was about 16, 17 when I played that game. Didn't seem as cheesy as it does looking at it now if you watch the, the footage on YouTube, but it's still enjoyable. And I like the idea of a Star Wars universe without the rule of two with a, the, the Sith, where there's a master and an apprentice and that's all you've got because, you know, you, you get a greater variety of Dark Jedi to fight and they're all working together, sort of, as best as Dark Jedi can work together. It's fun to fight multiple people with lightsabers. I think, well, I will not get into a prequel tangent, which I am sometimes prone to, but one of the big mistakes to me was the rule of two, and it was explained well, the reason behind it in, in the books and the expanded material, and I have no problem with that, but I just can't help but feel it would have been a lot cooler if in the prequels we had a bunch of dark Jedi fighting against a bunch of light Jedi. That is something we have never seen in a Star Wars movie. I would like to see the Braveheart scale battles in Star Wars that are between good Jedi and bad Sith or evil Jedi. The only times that we've seen multiple Jedi on screen are things like the Darth Maul lightsaber fight with Qui-Gon and, and Obi-Wan teaming up against him or on Geonosis where we got to see a bunch of Jedi, but they're fighting robots. And that is the antithesis of fun. I just would love to see giant lines of Jedi and Sith going at each other. I think it would be epic. So I'm hoping that some of these Star Wars movies that are in the works may cover that old Republic era, where we do have multiple Jedi and multiple factions of Jedi going up against each other. For good, for bad. I, just imagine... All of the visual awesomeness that you would get if you had multiple Jedi fighting each other on the battlefield, using their Force powers, it would be incredible. And the fact that we have gotten denied that in any of the Star Wars movies that we've had so far is really a downer for me. Another thing I remember about Dark Forces 2, 
is the bowcaster basically was like a heat-seeking weapon, almost. You could fire a bolt from the bowcaster, and it would track down your prey and kill them. And there were these creatures on one, these flying creatures that were kind of freaky on one planet, and uh, you could pick them off from a distance because your bowcaster could seek them out and find them. And the final battle against the bad Bad guy in that game, I think it was Jarek, was a real pain in the butt because he could regenerate. And so you would wail on him for a while, and then he would just sort of fly back to this cavern and regenerate with full health, and then you do it all over again. So he, he was tough to beat. 1998 was uh, Star Wars Rebellion. Now, this was a much different Star Wars game than anything I had played before. Now, I had a couple of friends in high school who loved strategy games, your Command and Conquer type games, Red Alert. I wasn't really that interested in them, but it's funny if you put a Star Wars symbol on the box, suddenly I think it's the great greatest game ever. And I really like Star Wars Rebellion. It was a big strategy resource management game, really not very graphically intensive. It did have some space battles that used some 3D modeling and, and did some neat things, but for the most part, there, there wasn't a lot graphically to it. it. It was simply about managing your resources. Despite that, you could acquire different characters and recruit different characters and run them on missions and they would get captured or they would succeed or sometimes they'd get killed and it was really awesome. It felt huge. You could play as the Alliance or you could play as the Galactic Empire. I did manage to beat the computer with both factions and, you know, they, they each have their pluses and, and minuses. The Galactic Empire is very powerful. They have their base on Coruscant, and the goal of the Rebel Alliance is to go to Coruscant and take over Coruscant and destroy the Empire. But the Empire has a lot more immediate resources, they've got more troops, it's easier for them to build ships initially, you know, I think they can research and make Death Stars and destroy planets, so they're tough. They've got a lot going for them. The Rebels in-game is to capture the rebel base, but the neat thing about the rebel base is you can move it. So you can move that from planet to planet to evade the Empire. So, you know, a, a couple of times you, you have this galactic map and you can work in different solar systems and different planetary systems. And so, you know, you'll say, well, we're starting to lose this territory and the Empire's starting to get a little bit close to the rebel base. So we're going to move it to a territory that we control a little stronger or that's a little farther away from the Empire's reach. And I remember doing that one time, and as soon as I moved it, the Empire sent their whole fleet to the planet where that base used to be. And you're just like, oh my goodness. If I hadn't been a little bit ahead of it, then we would have we, we lost the game. And I lost plenty of games of Star Wars Rebellions. It was tough. But you could send your people on missions to... Like, for instance, let's say you had Mon Mothma. You could send her from Chandrilla to another planet and try to recruit the populace through diplomacy to join the Rebel Alliance. If your diplomatic efforts were successful, then that planet would start churning out resources for you, raw materials, so then you could build ships at your shipyard and recruit more troops and make more war machines. On planets where the Empire had control, but the population wasn't really thrilled with the Empire, you could send, like, Han Solo down to that planet. He would incite an uprising. If that was successful, then that planet would shift from the Empire to the New Republic, or the Rebel Alliance at that point. And then you would get to take over their raw materials. They would send their aid to the Rebel Alliance. Then that meant you had more material to make ships and, and train troops, make battle cruisers. And it, it, it sounds boring, and it probably is boring, but when you work on the scope and the scale that that game worked on, it felt really epic. So you had all your typical things that you would do in a real-time strategy game, Resource management, shipbuilding, strategy, you know, like I said, then you could incite uprisings, so there was a, a an, there was an element of espionage and some intrigue. I just remember sinking a lot of hours into this, and 
there would there would be certain events that would happen because you would have Luke Skywalker and you could run Luke Skywalker on missions, but at some point in the game it would progress to the point where Luke Skywalker would go and train at Dagobah and become a Jedi and you would just sort of bide your time because at that point, after he would train, then he would eventually go and confront Vader and the Emperor, and depending upon how your resources were, that would set up a, a big final battle, and if you had a good fleet, you could beat the Empire that way, too. It, it was tough to take over Coruscant, because it was defended well, and like I said, the Empire had lots and lots of resources. They could build Star Destroyers, Death Stars, and, and just have an overwhelming amount of force, and they would take those core worlds around Coruscant and build those up and build those up. So you really had to, if you could, try to get a presence in either the neighboring system or in that system, maybe try to keep one of those core worlds on the Rebel Alliance side, or at least keep it unstable enough that you could incite an uprising later and give yourself a chance to, to stage an attack from there. But really cool game. I remember it had some really neat space battles that were 3D. And for 1998, it was pretty cool. Pretty cool graphically. Sometimes your characters would not survive a mission. So you, you would send Chewbacca on a mission somewhere. Or you would send Admiral Akbar on a mission. And it would be unsuccessful. Sometimes they would get captured. And then you could try to, through intelligence later, you could try to find out where the Empire was keeping them. And then you could go and rescue that person. Or try to rescue Launch a rescue mission. And then that's where the, the skill of your characters, the size of your fleet versus the size of the other guy's fleet matters. And if it was successful, then you got that character back and you could have him run missions again. Sometimes those missions did not go well and they didn't just get captured, but they just got killed. And then that character would be taken off the board. You really wanted to kill Vader. If you could, if you were the rebel Alliance, it's almost impossible, but it, but it can be done. And if you were the, you know, empire, then you wanted to kill Mon Mothma, Leia, Luke, any of those heroes of the rebellion. 1998, LucasArts brought us Rogue Squadron, and that was great. I'd had, I remember this was around the time that I was going to my first year of college, and I, I bought a new computer at that point. It was an HP Pavilion, had a 3D card and a 3D accelerator, so I was able to play Rogue Squadron, which had debuted on the Nintendo 64 and needed the RAM cartridge, I believe, to be run well. But I played it on the PC, and, you know, you, you had different ships with the Rebel Alliance, and you would topple the Empire. And just kind of an, a more arcade-ish shooter than X-Wing and TIE Fighter, which were more combat simulators. They were tougher. They were supposed to be, quote-unquote, more realistic. So they were a little more difficult, required a little bit more skill and management and care than Rogue Squadron, which was more just kind of a pure arcade type of shooter. For a long time, when I tried to play that, I just used the keyboard until I got to a level where you had an AT-AT walker, and you've got to put the, you know, tow cable around and, and zoom it around the legs of the AT-AT to, to, to bring it down. And for some reason, just trying to turn that ship with the arrow keys and keep the tow cable on just didn't work very well. Finally got a controller to do that, and that made that so much easier. And each mission had, like, bronze, silver, and gold objectives, so you would get rewarded a medal based on your performance in a particular mission. So if you beat in a certain amount of time, if you kept a certain amount of resources from being destroyed, if you met all of the secondary objectives or the tertiary objectives in a mission, then you got better performance based on that, and then you got a better medal. And, you know, the, the missions ran the gamut from, you know, destroy this base or rescue this person to protect the target or protect the convoy, which, you know, nobody likes the protect the target, protect the convoy missions, but they always pop up in games, and, you know, really it was just a chance to go out and blast stuff. On the Sony PlayStation, we had Masters of Terrace which is a martial arts form, first mentioned, I believe... In Shadows of the Empire, Prince Shisor was a practitioner. And it's funny because that game is not great. It's actually probably more fun than people are getting credit for, but it's not a good game. Like, you, you can have a game that's not good, but you can still find some fun out of it. And, and that's kind of how I feel about that game. One-on-one -on -one fighting game, so... You've got Han Solo and his blaster taking on Darth Vader and his lightsaber in these Star Wars-themed levels. And then there's actually a sand person that you can play as, and he's one of the, the playable fighters. 
So whatever. I don't know what the deal was with that. But it happened. It was a game. And the funny thing about it is, though, the martial arts form, which originated in Shadows of the Empire, and then really probably became more famous with this game since it's in the title, but Ryan Johnson said that the Praetorian Guard and the Last Jedi were skilled in many martial arts, including Terrace Kass, and then Kira, in the Solo movie, actually name-drops it, which is hilarious. I don't think anybody else in the movie theater found that funny, but I, I just thought that was a riot. I remember laughing pretty hard at that, just because, in disbelief, that they would actually invoke that name in a movie. Because... If the Praetorian Guard know the art form or the, the martial arts form, that's fine, but it, it's one of those things that's background information, like in the visual dictionary or the novelization. It's not said in the movie. In Solo, they actually mention the darn thing, and I just thought that was great. 1999, LucasArts brought us The Phantom Menace. It was on PC. It was also on PlayStation. It was not a good game. Now, the PC version looked a lot better than the PlayStation version, but both versions were not good. We played a lot in college, though, and I had a friend who would play it with me, and I'd play it for a while, he'd watch me, he'd play for a while, I'd watch him, and he just had this tendency to get turned around in levels and get completely lost. Sometimes it would happen to me, too, but it really happened to him, like, all the time. And so we would just say, like, you're not good in malls, are you? But you know what? Despite it being a mediocre game... We had a lot of fun with it my freshman year in college. That was when The Phantom Menace came out. Well, it had been out. I went to college in the fall, obviously, and the movie had been out in May, but I still had Phantom Menace fever at that point. I had a Qui-Gon Jinn stand-up that I took to school, and he stood there and stood watch on everything. Had a Darth Maul inflatable chair as well, so, you know, 18-year-old Matt, didn't really care that nobody liked the Star Wars prequels. And neither did 19-year-old Matt, because he's the one who actually went to college, since that would have been after July. But you, you can still enjoy those movies. But I, I think in retrospect, when you kind of look at the storytelling and some of the elements that were at play there, we could have gotten some really great movies, and we didn't. But they're canon. They're still part of the Star Wars universe, and you, you've got to acknowledge them. One thing I remember really well in that game is it was pretty easy to deflect blaster bolts, which is, you know, what a Jedi should do anyway. And the final battle against Darth Maul is a lot easier if you just sort of creep toward the edge of the screen and shoot him with a blaster, which is what we did and how we beat him. It was really cheap, but hey, they allowed you to do it, and it worked. About a year later, we got another take on Star Wars Episode One with Jedi Power Battles, which was a more arcade-type game. You could play as Qui-Gon, Plo Koon... Mace Windu, and maybe Addy Gallia. It was kind of an isometric view game and a hack and slash. Not a lot of strategy to it, but it, it was fun. I think people probably crap on a lot these days, but I always thought it was a fun game. It's not great. It's it's leagues better than the Phantom Menace game that's that's based directly on the movie. And it's it's got some enjoyable stuff to it, but it's got some annoyances. Sometimes the, the camera's out of whack, and you can't tell where you're supposed to jump. You know, sometimes you've got that perspective where it looks like you're jumping onto something, but you're actually jumping over it or to the side of it, and you don't really realize it until your character misses the target and plunges to his death. There were a few things like that in Jedi Power Battles. Overall, I thought it was kind of a fun arcade-style hack-and-slash game. 2002 brought us Jedi Outcast, Jedi Knight 2, which I suppose would also technically be Dark Forces 3, but they probably didn't want to call it Dark Forces 3, Jedi Knight 2, Jedi Outcast, because that's kind of clunky. Kyle Katarn was back after nearly succumbing to the dark side. He's back to his mercenary ways and has sort of renounced the ways of the Jedi. So the game starts off, you know, pretty standard shooter fare against the Empire and blasters and, and that sort of thing. But since it's Jedi Knight 2, he learns to embrace the Force once again. He gets some training from Luke Skywalker. He also gets a, a nice cameo from Lando Calrissian. And Billy D. Williams, I think, did the voice while Luke was a sound alike. In the end, you fight a lightsaber-wielding Velociraptor. It's really, it is better than it sounds. It's not a bad game at all. It's a good entry in the series. Don't remember as much about it as I do about Dark Forces 2. I had this one, it was a PC game, but I had the Xbox version. We'll just uh, run through a couple more here. 
one of the the best. I, I think if if people put together a best list or a list of the best Star Wars games, Knights of the Old Republic for the Xbox from two thousand three got to be in that top part. There's just no denying about it. I'm not going to talk too much about the sequel. It had some problems, but it was still a good game. But the first one absolutely rocks. Everything you want from a Star Wars game. Epic story. It's an action RPG, so you have a lot of great fights in there. You get to use force powers. And it's familiar without being too familiar. And what I mean by that, it's set in the Old Republic timeline, which is several thousand years before, you know, Luke and Leia and Han and Darth Vader and all that. And you still got, like, the Sith and the Galactic Republic. So you have sort of your, your good and your bad faction. And things are familiar without feeling like they're too much the same. The, the best part of it is there is a droid named HK-47. He refers to you as a meatbag pretty much all the time. And he's got a great wit probably their best expanded universe character that they've done, especially one that's a droid. You wouldn't have K2SO or L3 from Solo without HK-47 because he's just this no-nonsense, sarcastic, pretty mean-spirited droid. And he's an assassin droid. He'll get you out of some scrapes. Commentary. That's the way to tell the meatbags, master. Charging weapons just in case. This should be fun. It did not take long for my master to realize his mistake. By then, I had already terminated 104 corporate officers. Expletive. Damn it, master. I am an assassination droid, not a dictionary. Commentary. One would hope the female is better at repairs than Yukalaka. I still would like to crush his neck, master. Commentary. Yes, master. Did I ever tell you how much I enjoy killing for you, master? Commentary. As do I. It is our lot in life, I suppose, Master. Shall we find something to kill to cheer ourselves up? Request. Let me deal with him, Master. It would be so much fun. Explanation. It is my combative nature, Master. I cannot help myself. I'll make it up to you. Allow me to kill something in your honor. But there's there's a lot to do. There's there's a main story, of course, in, in which you're on a quest. You'll, you'll also participate in swoop races. You'll compete in gladiator battles. You'll shoot down enemy starfighters. There's like a blackjack-type game called Pazak that you can use to earn money. You'll go to Kashyyyk. You'll go to Tatooine. You'll go to Korriban, which is the site of a Sith Academy. And you're trying to stop, you know, it's a galaxy-destroying device because, you know, what else are you going to do? But it's called the Star Forge. It's pretty nasty stuff. I'm not the biggest RPG player in the world, but I like this one. It's very similar. Its spiritual successor to me is Mass Effect. Shares a lot of similarities. I mean, if you were to take some of the Mass Effect stuff out of Mass Effect and just transplant Star Wars characters in that game, it would be a lot like Knights of the Old Republic. It's more refined, especially the later versions than Knights of the Old Republic. It's got a great story, tremendous voice acting, a lot of heart and some humor. I, I liked a lot of the side missions that you can do. And it also has one of the greatest reveals, greatest plot twists in video game history. If you've played it, you, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who might be interested in the game. But if you're really interested in it, would like to know what happens, just, just Google it. Check it out on Wikipedia. I'm sure it'll tell you what that big twist is. It just completely recharacterizes the game, and it's awesome. 2005, we got Battlefront 2 for the Xbox and the PS2. Great shooter, epic scope, fast and furious action. You pick a class, you go to work, you blast away at the enemy. If you play well enough, you unlock a hero character who can completely turn the tide of a battle. There's some vehicular combat. It is more fun than the current crop of Battlefront games. And they're trying really hard to recapture the magic of that, and they just have not managed to do it, which is a real shame. And the last one I'll talk about, the last game of consequence to me as a gamer anyway, is The Force Unleashed, which was for the Xbox 360, or the version that I played was the Xbox 360 in 2009. You know what? I loved it. It looked great. You really felt like you could do anything with The Force. You know, push a bunch of stormtroopers off a ledge throw them around, beat an ATST, beat a Rancor, use your Force Lightning, solid game with with a fun story that's obviously no longer canon, but it's kind of fun how it 
presents an alternate version of the way the Rebel Alliance came to prominence. You had some pretty tough enemies, especially the Purge Troopers, which were these sort of tall, black-armored troopers that were pretty resistant to your force powers. And there were royal guards that were super powerful as well that were tough. Target locking was a problem on occasion, but, you know, you kind of got used to it. it. It was really the worst when you had to hurl junk at people. You got to have a showdown with Darth Vader. You know, it gets a lot more right than it gets wrong. And I can understand if some fans thoroughly hate it. But I had a good time with it in the main character, Star Killer, who is Vader's secret apprentice as he tries to make his claim on the Empire. Probably the, the thing that I remember most about that game is the stupid level where you have to bring a Star Destroyer down from the sky. And it's a, it's a neat idea. It's the, the controls on that, the first couple of times you try to do it, are so unclear as to how this thing's supposed to work. You're basically working the analog sticks in certain directions as the game is instructing you on screen. And if you do it right then, you know, you get control of part of the Star Destroyer. Eventually, you can just capitalize on that massive force potential and just pull the whole thing down from the sky. And it's cool once it happens, but my goodness, trying to get that to work is, uh, was a tough. I wrote, I remember writing a blog post about that. I was on vacation for a week and spent a long time trying to get that stupid Star Destroyer out of the sky. Ah, uh, one of the Star Destroyers, it's headed right for me. I gotta get out of here. You'll never get clear in time. You need to pull it into the cannon. What? You're insane. It's massive. You're a Jedi, boy. Size means nothing to you. Reach out with the Force and grab that ship, or you will die on this trash heap. Reach out with the Force and grip that destroyer. Has the Starship been destroyed? I repeat, has the starship been destroyed? Respond. Boy! Relax, General. I'm still here. Good. Good. We'll see you back at the ship. But, you know, the game had a lot of style, some really great graphics, and it's fun to play through. I would, I would recommend The Force Unleashed. I know that it's not for everybody, but... I think it's a solid gaming experience. Well, and that's about it for this edition of the Madams Podcast. Just to look through the LucasArts catalog. Five years since they've been shut down, and I really don't think we've gotten a really great Star Wars game since then. But there's hope. There's a game coming up that sounds like it's going to be a single-player game that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm sure some of the kids have fun with the mobile games. The Disney Infinity stuff, you know, once again, rest in peace, but I know that my nephew really loved playing that when it was going on. And Lego Star Wars. Really cannot fault anything with Lego Star Wars. I know people complain that a lot of the Lego games feel the same, and really, mechanically, yes, they are. There's this one character who can do this one thing, and that'll get you through the level, but then you go back and play it, and now you can get access to new levels and collect more things. I get it. But it's fun. They're fun games. They've got a good sense of humor. And I've really liked Lego games since the original Lego Star Wars. Did you have any favorite LucasArts games? Or, or just any Star Wars video games in general? Do you, do you lament the fact that it feels like we don't really have any good ones lately? And, and I mean, I didn't even cover some real classics. I did not have an N64. So I did not mention Shadows of the Empire, the video game. And I did not have a Super Nintendo so I didn't really talk about Super Star Wars, Super Empire Strikes Back, and Super Return of the Jedi, which were the 16-bit versions of Star Wars movies that were balls hard. You talk about respawning bad guys and impossible jumps and blind jumps and difficult bosses and overpowered characters that you're up against and unavoidable hits. Super Star Wars will get you. Now, I do remember at one point, I thought they were going to bring those games out for the Sega Genesis, but they, they never came out. Never got a Super Nintendo. I did not play those games until college when one of my roommates had a Super... Until after college, actually, when one of my roommates had a Super Nintendo, and we bought those games for, like, three bucks a piece from a GameStop, because at that point, then Super Nintendo wasn't considered retro. It was just old, and nobody wanted to have have that stock in their store so I, I was able to play them wasn't particularly good at them 
and I have a, uh, a Raspberry Pi or equivalent Raspberry Pi that I have played those games and I'm slowly trying to work my way through that. I don't know if I'll ever make it through. Maybe when I was in my teens, my reflexes were a little bit better, I had better patience for things, maybe I could make it through those games. Doing it right now is really difficult. You know, one thing that I think would be really, really cool, and I don't think, I mean, yeah, you'd have to develop it and you, you would need somebody to do that, but I think it would be really fun if they did Super Star Wars style retro game side-scroller based on The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, either separate games or a combined game, or wait until Episode 9's out and do a combined game with all three movies, or just do a separate game for each movie. I think that would be so much fun. You know, you could run around as Rey and Finn and Poe and maybe even throw in, like, a Kylo Ren level or something like that. I think that would be awesome. Just do stupid stuff with the bosses and, and put your characters in ridiculous situations that didn't happen in the movies because that's what the Super Star Wars games did. I would love to see that. And you could just kind of do it in that same art style and release it at, you know, on Steam and in the Xbox and PS4 and Switch. I think that is a million-dollar idea. Disney, get on that. Thanks for listening, everybody.